Role Models by Squid Glader. Read for you by Ashita. Summary In which Ian Ursidis, an OC of Squid Gladers, has some run ins with the Marauders and learns a few valuable lessons. That was the corridor that would have taken him back to the dormitory, wasn't it? Ian Ursidis eyed the door in front of him. He was pretty sure that if he left the library that way, he'd get back to Ravenclaw Tower, but for some reason, he couldn't remember that door ever being there before. He knew it was the quickest way back, but he couldn't remember how he knew. Ian frowned. He was a second-year Ravenclaw. He should have known all the fastest routes from his dormitory to the library and back. He was pretty sure he did know all the fastest routes from his dormitory to the library. Up until two minutes ago, he'd have said that he knew them in his sleep. And yet, here was a door, which seemed to be telling him that it would take him back to the tower, and which his gut was telling him did, but that he hadn't even known existed. He took a step forward. He might as well try it, after all. He took another step. I went in. The voice was calm and flat from an armchair just beside the doorway, and Ian now realized that Remus Lupin was sitting in it, mostly hidden in the depths of the library's shadows. Oh, said Ian, stopping. Remus was clearly waiting by the door to prevent exactly what Ian had been about to do. He looked at Remus for an explanation, but Remus didn't look up from his book. Er, why not? Remus finally peered at him over the top of asymmetric arithmancy and abstract analysis. It was too dark to see him clearly, but Ian could just make out the silver line of his distinctive scar, a clean line across his nose. Ian and his roommate Michael had spent a good hour discussing possible origins for that scar just the other day. Ian's personal favorite was Michael's suggestion that Remus had been savaged by an airborne hippogriff in his first and last broomstick practice. This also conveniently explained why Remus was the only marauder who wasn't on the Gryffindor Quidditch team. Ursidus, isn't it? said Remus, still peering at him. Ian nodded, and Remus winced and clicked his tongue. It made a noise that said, hard luck, mate. It was also a noise that suggested he might know the pain of having a name that people immediately raised their eyebrows at, or at least made animal-related jokes about. At least my parents didn't name me Teddy, said Ian. Remus gave a little snort of laughter. It was a noise that said, Touché. The door's got a transportation charm on it, said Remus after a moment. (laughs) And an enticement charm. Looks like an inviting shortcut, but take it and you'll be dumped on your arse in the alley. Somebody's idea of a really funny prank. His voice rose a little in volume at the end of the last sentence, pointedly. Ian's mouth fell open. That's... And then trailed off. Impossible? Supplied Remus helpfully. Ian was thinking about it. Well, no, but it's... Bloody difficult. Yeah. Well, said Remus, then annoyingly didn't elaborate. Ian looked at the doorway, impressed. A transportation charm didn't quite violate the anti-apparition wards, especially if the transportation didn't go from outside Hogwarts to inside Hogwarts. But Ian knew enough about the other wards in the castle from reading Hogwarts A History, despite plenty of mockery from Michael, to know that it would have been very difficult to work around them to produce this piece of spellwork. He was also thinking about where the Owlry was in relation to the Ravenclaw Tower. 
and wondering if it might make sense to risk the transportation charm. The Owlry was closer to the tower than the library by a little bit, and then he wouldn't have to climb all those bloody stairs. Remus was watching him. It's not a very pleasant trip, he said, the corners of his mouth quirking up. Mooney, came another voice, and James Potter materialized from somewhere behind Remus's chair. Ian jumped. He hadn't heard James approach. Would you stop bloody warning people? We haven't seen a single person try it. You could just let... Let a few first years be illegally and dangerously transported six floors up and pitched into owl dung, asked Remus, turning a page with a bored flick of his wrist. Right, that sounds like a fantastic thing to let happen in my third week as a prefect. I'm a second year, mumbled Ian. Remus shot him an apologetic smile, but James had already barreled on, sounding annoyed. I can't believe you. Three weeks with that silver badge, and you've abandoned the marauders entirely. My god, man, where's your sense of loyalty, duty, honor? The marauders. Ian felt himself shiver at the casual invocation. Amongst the rest of the Hogwarts students, the words were whispered in classrooms, murmured in dormitories, kicked down hallways like a tin can. The marauders, people said, with glee or awe or contempt. Ian had known the words by the end of his first term, and the faces that went along with them by summer. They were Hogwarts lore already. They would be in the history books, and everybody knew it, whether they liked the idea or not. At first, Ian had thought the marauders referred to a twosome, James Potter and Sirius Black. One dark, one pale, one so gangly it seemed a miracle he stayed upright, one so elegant it took you ten minutes to realize his tie was askew and his shirt's buttons were off by one, both of them loud, both of them annoying and posh and funny, above all funny, always joking, earnestness swept away in front of them like darkness before a torch. It took Ian much longer to realize the marauders were four— James and Sirius and Remus Lupin and Peter Pettigrew. He supposed that they were all rooming together, but had that really been enough to make the other two marauders? What had allowed them into this shining edifice of the nickname? Remus seemed clever enough, but he was a prefect. He studied diligently and got good marks and was a bit shabby in a dignified, old mannish way. He was quiet and sober. He seemed a bit of a swat. I'm a harlot said Remus now, not looking up from his book. Loyal to no man. Certainly not to you, Potter. Come on, Mooney, said James, a wheedling note entering his tone. Just one or two, so we know it works. Ian looked up startled. You don't know that it works, he asked, horrified. He took a step back from the doorway, which now seemed to have a sinister slant to it. James waved a hand impatiently. It works, he said, not looking around at Ian. Well, he said after a significant cough from Remus. We're fairly sure it does. Sirius is waiting in the hourry to make sure people end up on the other side all right. Ian took a further step back. The honourable thing would be to try it yourself, said Remus. He flipped another page of his book. Maybe then I'd let a few firsties. He paused, amended. A few young ones through. Ian didn't think young ones was much better than misremembering him as a first year, but he didn't interrupt. He was rather hoping that James would go through the doorway just so that Ian could watch. 
and James seemed to be taking Remus's suggestion seriously. His back had straightened at the word honorable, and he was reluctantly eyeing the door. Well, he said after a moment, I suppose you're right, and you'll promise you'll let other people try it out after. Remus paused, thinking about it, then nodded. James took a deep breath and walked forward. Just before he reached out for the doorknob, he cast his eyes around for Ian. You, he said, pointing a finger at him. Remember this? Write it down, tell your friends, whatever. Well, maybe wait a day and then tell your friends. If this works, it's a triumph. I want witnesses. Ian nodded solemnly. He could see Remus smirking out of the corner of his eye. James opened the door and Ian had just enough time to see what looked like a perfectly normal corridor beyond it before James stepped through and was swallowed up by a dark, roiling cloud of smoke. James squeaked. They could hear it through the smoke. And then there was a yell that extended for a long time and got quieter as it did, as if they were hearing somebody fall down a pit. Remus had jumped up when James stepped through the door, and now he ran to it, Ian following close behind. The last sound they heard through the door was a loud, decisive splash, and a high-pitched scream. Then the smoke dissipated as quickly as it had appeared. "'Oh, God!' said Ian, thinking frantically that he had just watched somebody die. Somebody had clearly just plummeted to their death. And not just any somebody. He had just watched James Potter plummet to his death. He looked up at Remus, mouth open, incapable of words. Remus was looking through the door, still smirking. It's all right, said Remus, addressing Ian, but still looking into the dark hallway. I changed up the spell a bit. It goes to the lake now. He finally looked down at Ian, eyes twinkling. He's perfectly safe. He'll just be a bit wet. Ian gaped at him. But the squid! It was the first thing he could think of. Remus waved a hand. Oh, he'll be fine. A little squid groping will do him good. He turned to sit back down in his armchair. Better take the normal route back, he said mildly, picking up his book. Ian gulped and backed away. When he was out of sight, he turned around and ran all the way to the dorms, bursting to tell Michael about what he had just witnessed. He suddenly understood why Remus was a marauder. Ian's next run-in with the Marauders was more significant. It was almost exactly a year later. He was freshly at third year and, on this occasion, exploring. He had just reached the seventh floor when he ran into Sirius Black, who was headed the same direction. Ian stopped short, and when he noticed Ian, so did Sirius. Hello? said Sirius with surprise. Uh, Ursine. Um, no, said Ian. Ursidis. That's it. Unfortunate, that. At least my parents didn't call me Teddy, said Ian, reusing an old joke. Sirius raised an eyebrow. Indeed, he said, deadpan. Ian felt a little deflated. Remus thought it was funny, he thought churlishly. Have you got, a uh, business up here? Said Sirius skeptically. There was nothing on the seventh floor but an underused defense classroom and broom closets. And the room of requirement, of course. Ian had spent months trying to prove to Michael that reading Hogwarts a history was worth the effort. It wasn't until Ian had found a coded reference to something called the come-and-go room, and waded through several pages of footnotes and then six referenced texts, 
all of which called the room by a different name, to determine where the room was and how to get inside that Michael finally admitted Hogwarts a history might have some use. Not that he would ever read it. He had let Ian do that, and would continue to do so. Um, said Ian, now I'm meeting a friend. They looked at each other. Sirius's face was set. Ian thought it was pretty obvious that both of them were on the seventh floor for the room of requirement, but clearly neither of them were about to admit it. Instead, they simply glared at each other. Luckily, they were saved from too long of a staring contest by the appearance of James Potter rocketing down the hallway. <sighs> oh, Christ, Pads, thank Merlin. Listen, we've got a problem, he panted before skidding to a halt in front of both of them and noticing Ian. He blinked. Ah, uh, sorry? Ursula, is it? Ursidus, said Ian. Right, ah, uh -huh. he turned to Sirius, still breathing hard. Listen, we've, um, he shot a glance at Ian. We've got an issuation, say? An estge in the umre? A requirement ray? Ian felt his eyebrows shoot up, probably to his hairline. What do you mean? asked Sirius. He looked irritated. Can't you just get rid of them? Well, said James, stretching the word out far longer than it usually was. This eske sort of let the Ogsfrey escape. I know pig Latin, said Ian, too offended to absorb the extent of the situation. And even if I didn't, I think I would have figured out what umre of requirement re means. He paused. Wait, frogs, what do you mean escape? Yes, James, said Sirius sweetly. His hand had found the collar of James's robes and was gripping it. What do you mean escape? James struggled against Sirius's hand. Um, it's probably fine, he squeaked. We'll just have to do a little bit of rounding up. Sirius closed his eyes. Please tell me we haven't let five hundred frogs loose in the room of requirement. James remained silent. James, groaned Sirius. Those were so expensive. We'll get them all back, said James, still struggling against Sirius's grip on his collar. With the four of us, it should just take, uh, a few hours. Sirius groaned again and finally let James go. Christ, we'll never get them all before dinner. Then he frowned. Who did you say let them out? I can help, said Ian. It came out before he had time to think about why there were 500 frogs in the room of requirement, or why they needed to be rounded up in time for dinner. But he was pretty sure he knew who had let the frogs out, whatever their previous containment had been. Sure enough, when James and Sirius finally relented to letting him into the room of requirement, Ian was unsurprised to see Michael, clambering up a bookshelf with wand in hand. Ian, yelled Michael, they let you in. He hopped down from a shelf and ran over, a frog held in one hand. I've done something terrible, he said when he was close enough to talk more quietly. His expression was grave and he looked guiltily around the room. Ian looked around as well. There were frogs everywhere. As usual, the shelves in the room of requirement were full of books, trinkets, and magical items. But now, the shelves were also teeming with small, emerald green frogs. The sound in the room was a deafening riot of croaking. Why were they keeping so many in here? Asked Ian in disbelief, gazing around at the pandemonium. 
he could see Remus Lupin three aisles away, grimly scooping frogs into a bucket. An aisle past him, Peter Pettigrew was brushing frogs off a shelf into an empty vase, looking disgusted. Michael shrugged. They won't tell me. They were keeping them in a giant chest. He gestured to a chest in the corner that Ian had never noticed before. Possibly it hadn't been there until the marauders needed a place to store amphibians. And I opened it up to see what the noise was. Were they in the room when you got here? No, no, I got here before them. I didn't know they knew about the room too, did you? Ian shook his head. He had thought until about ten minutes ago that he and Michael were the only two students who currently knew about the Room of Requirement and how it worked. Apparently the Marauders also knew about it and were putting it to good use, if the frog infestation was any measure of good use. I think they hate me, confided Michael. He was looking pale and guilty. The frog in his hand was croaking balefully. It was their fault for leaving five hundred frogs unattended in a public room said Ian flatly. Yeah, but I shouldn't have gone snooping, argued Michael. Ian scoffed. Anybody would have opened a chest that was making that much noise, he said. Michael looked mollified. Oi, pipsqueaks, said James, walking up to them with metal helmets, pilfered from suits of armor. Since this is your doing, he looked pointedly at Michael, and you volunteered, that to Ian, you can help round up these fuckers. Ian and Michael immediately got to work. They followed Remus and Peter's lead at first, scooping up frogs into the helmets and transferring them back into the chest when the helmets were full. After ten minutes, Ian was already disgusted by the work. The frogs were unpleasantly slimy and unwilling to be scooped. He had to chase them in undignified leaps around the cluttered room. This is idiotic, he panted after he had banged his knee on an abandoned cauldron trying to catch a frog that had jumped behind it. Can't we just, I don't know, accue them? He stopped, feeling silly. Fumbling for his wand, he raised it into the air. No, yelped Michael, grabbing his wrist. Don't do it. He wore a hunted expression, and Ian looked at him, confused. Pettigrew already tried it, said Michael in a way of explanation. Ian looked around at Peter and understood. Peter was completely covered in pale patches of slime, and he had several small bruises forming on his arms and face, as if he had been hit all over with a volley of high-speed, slimy projectiles. Ah, said Ian, lowering his wand. Never mind. But as he kept gathering frogs, he turned the problem over in his mind. There had to be a more efficient way to gather the creatures. Otherwise, this was going to take hours, days even. The frogs were dispersing into shelves of items, hiding themselves in hard-to-reach spaces. It was going to be hell to round them all up. The others seemed to be having an oddly good time of it, from the sound of it. They had made a game of the work and were competing to see who could catch the most frogs in a given amount of time. That's seven prongs, Sirius was saying gleefully. Take that, I am the frog master. Damn, I thought Six was going to win, said James grumpily. I had to catch this one on top of that bookshelf, he added, waving one of his captured frogs towards a tall shelf. Does that win me any extra points? No, Sirius said decisively, unless you'll give me a point for catching this one behind the gargoyle. No way, that's not the same thing at all. No extra points for either of us then. Mooney? Sirius called, towards where Remus was crouched down behind a pile of ancient textbooks. Can you beat Seven? 
What? Said Remus vaguely. Oh, yes, I've got ten. What? You scoundrel. Prove it. Sirius bounded over to Remus, who looked up guiltily. Merlin's balls, Remus. Are you reading? No, said Remus. He looked shifty-eyed. Well, a bit. He held up a textbook. This is a history book from the 18th century. (laughs) Bloody hell, said Sirius, then grabbed Remus's arm and hauled him away from the books. You can catch frogs by the gargoyle with me instead. Clearly I need to keep an eye on you. I never get to have any fun, muttered Remus, but he was laughing as Sirius shoved him towards a pile of abandoned stone statues, and they began to squabble good-naturedly over who was chasing which frog. You aren't allowed to compete in teams, called James, watching Sirius chase a frog into Remus's bucket, unless I can be on a team with Peter. Fine, said Sirius. We are a team, and you and Peter are a team. Whoever gets to 50 frogs first wins. And the second years can be a team, he added as an afterthought. Third years, muttered Ian, but he was only partially paying attention. Watching Sirius and Remus work together had given him an idea. You remember the wind charm we learned last week? He asked Michael quietly. Michael nodded. Sure. Why? Could you make it spin? Like a tornado? Michael thought about it, head cocked to one side. He had mastered the charm easily, had been the first one to do so, and Ian could tell he was thinking about what it would take to make the simple gust of wind into a funnel. Yeah, he said after a minute. I I think so. Yeah. He took out his wand and made an experimental motion, saying the words of the spell as he did. There was a motion of dust in the air in front of them, a spinning whirlwind. Perfect, grinned Ian. Now, can you aim the spout, maybe towards this book? He pointed at a book lying on the ground next to him. Michael frowned in concentration and then cast the spell again. The whirlwind of dust motes was now balanced perfectly on top of the book. Yes, crowed Ian. You're wonderful. Okay, listen. He explained what he wanted to do and Michael's grin grew wide and delighted. Okay, he said, excited. Got it. I'm ready. They ran over to the chest that was now a quarter full of frogs, and Michael cast the spell again. A funnel of whirling air formed above the chest, the spout just over the lid, and the wide mouth pointed in the direction of the rest of the room. Ready, called Ian, and they crouched down. Accio frogs! He opened the lid of the chest. There was a whooshing sound. The sound of several hundred surprised croaks and four startled yells quickly followed by a series of many soft thunks of frogs against the sides and bottom of the chest. For a minute it was all Ian could hear, the battering of amphibians against the wooden lid next to his head, and the rising cacophony of croaking in close proximity. When the noise of the frogs hitting wood stopped, he quickly closed the lid of the chest. The room was abruptly silent. When Ian peeked over the chest, he found the four marauders watching him mouths open. There were several long seconds of astonished silence. Can we keep them? said Remus finally. Later, Ian and Michael tagged along behind as Remus and James lugged the chest towards the Slytherin dungeons, James and Peter moving ahead to keep watch. Are we accomplices now? whispered Michael. Definitely responded Ian, grinning. Michael grinned back. After the frogs had been unceremoniously ushered into Slytherin common room, 
Neither Michael or Ian were brave enough to ask how the marauders knew the password. They all hurried to dinner. An hour should be enough time for them to disperse, explained James happily. They'll be finding frogs in their beds for weeks. We'll just have to hope that nobody uses your trick for rounding them up, said Remus, looking at Ian and Michael appreciatively. Even if they do, said Sirius, I'm guessing it'll take them hours. They won't get much sleep tonight. Just in time for the Quidditch match tomorrow, finished James with a gleeful hop up two stairs. Ian and Michael glanced at each other, eyebrows raised. This was all about Quidditch. They had to look away from each other so as to not burst out laughing. As they climbed the stairs to the Great Hall, Sirius threw his arm around Remus's shoulders. You know, he called to James, Mooney and I would have won that frog-catching contest if the pipsqueaks hadn't intervened. We had forty in our bucket before they were rudely summoned away. Well, we had forty-five, said James over his shoulder smugly. Liar, frowned Sirius, looking suspicious. Nope. Forty-five. Peter was counting. Don't trust him. Hey, said Peter, looking offended. I would never fudge a frog count. Sirius looked annoyed. Well, I thought we did quite well, he said to Remus more quietly. Your frog handling skills are unparalleled. Remus scoffed and muttered something about non-translatable skills, but Ian thought he looked pleased nonetheless. Hey, pipsqueaks said Sirius as they reached the Great Hall, and Ian and Michael turned towards the Ravenclaw table. Don't tell anybody, yeah? Sirius, said Remus, rolling his eyes. They're second years, not idiots. Third years, said Ian and Michael simultaneously. Remus grinned. Sorry. He put a hand on Sirius's shoulder and steered him away, towards where James and Peter were already sitting down. Honestly, Pads, you can't accuse every Ravenclaw of beating tattletales. You'll give us a bad reputation. Ian heard before they were out of earshot. Another year went by, during which Ian could almost entirely forget about the Marauders, except for the occasions when their pranks affected the whole school in some way. It wasn't that he wasn't still a bit awestruck by them. They were practically legends, after all. But they were a clique, too. They were insular and private, they kept to Gryffindor Tower and to their own friends. Ian knew that they must have been wandering around the castle in order to pull off the things they did, but he never caught them at it. Nobody did. He and his classmates were too busy to worry much about the Marauders anyway. At its best, being in Ravenclaw felt like being part of an intellectually engaging, endlessly fascinating dinner party. Everybody with their own interests, and everybody happy to talk about any topic that seemed compelling, or at the very least, useful. At its worst, being in Ravenclaw felt like being in a Lord of the Flies-style competition for intellectual supremacy, complete with cutthroat alliances, study groups, and meaningless symbols of power, prefix badges. Sometimes Ian felt like the only things keeping him from going completely insane were the nights that he and Michael spent roaming the castle, hunting down the secret passageways that they had assumed must exist based on the marauder's ability to wander the school unobserved. They had already found quite a useful passage that took them to the Honeyduke storeroom, although they had so far refrained from pilfering more than a handful of sweets here and there. One night, Ian was wandering around a quiet fourth-floor corridor, half-heartedly looking for the painting of Edward the Disemboweler, which he had read about but never managed to find. 
he had found a book that mentioned it as a possible secret passageway entrance, although he had his doubts. Anyway, it wasn't as much fun without Michael, who was trying to finish the essay. He had just checked off another alcove as not containing the painting when he heard a moan of pain and a single half-choked sob. He looked around for the source of the sound and found it. A huddled shape in the next alcove over, in the shadows of a statue. It was only when he leaned over the words, Are you alright? Forming tentatively in his throat that he recognized who it was, Remus Lupin. Remus was pale and trembling and he was hunched awkwardly over his left arm, as if shielding it or hiding it. When he saw Ian, he drew back, but in the next moment he seemed to recognize who it was and relax. Ursidus, he said, his voice barely a whisper, pain edging in from every angle. Ian immediately dropped down to a crouch next to him. What's wrong? Are you okay? He reached towards Remus's arm, but Remus jerked away. Ian pulled back helplessly. What can I do? I'll get help. He moved to get up and Remus gasped. Oh, his face contorted and he pushed himself up a few inches off the ground with his good arm so that he could lean against the wall. Then he fumbled in the pocket of his robes for something before pushing a piece of parchment into Ian's hands. Get serious, he choked out. Ian looked down at the parchment. It took him a second to realize what he was looking at, to recognize the collection of orderly lines for what they were. It was a map, detailed and beautiful. It seemed to breathe as Ian looked at it. A few of the lines and symbols were moving around, the ink bleeding in and out of the page as they did so. Remus reached out again and tapped the map over a minute label. Ian looked closer. The label said Sirius Black in tiny, neat letters over a pair of inked footprints. Ian suddenly realized that there were many pairs of inked footprints all over the map, some of them moving, some of them steady. They all had names attached to them. Ian quickly found his own name next to Remus's name. At the top of the parchment was a carefully printed title. The Marauder's Map. Many things clicked into place all at once. All the nights that the Marauders had clearly spent out of their rooms without being detected by professors. All the pranks that they had pulled off without being caught. All the times that Snape had been targeted by spells and the Marauders had been nowhere to be found. Ian looked up, gaping. How did you make? But the look on Remus's face stopped him dead. Remus was pale as parchment, and his mouth was a hard line. Ian got up and ran for the library. Sirius was exactly where the map said he would be, sprawled in an armchair, a book on the small table in front of him. He looked up as Ian burst in loudly into the library. Everyone looked up, in fact, as the library was utterly silent. Students hunched over books in their last preparations for final exams, then looked down again uninterested. It was only when Ian rushed over to him, looming over Sirius's desk, that Sirius looked up again. You're blocking my light, Pipsqueak, he said, annoyed. What do you want? Ian thrust the map into his hands. Sirius's face went so immediately, carefully blank that Ian had a sudden realization about the Marauders, his second of the night. The map was all in good, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to be missing from the scene of the crime. You also had to never admit guilt. You had to be prepared to deny, 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 even if it meant not claiming responsibility for a very impressive feat of spell work. 
If you wanted something to be secret, you had to be prepared to keep it so, even when the temptation to give the game away, to brag, was strong. From Sirius's reaction to being confronted with the map, Ian guessed that he was well-practiced. The map was a marvel of spellwork. Sirius was about to deny any association with it. What's this? Sirius asked, looking disdainfully at the yellowish parchment in his hands. A map, is it? I think I know where my classes are by now, thanks. Sirius was a very, very good actor. His expression said very convincingly, What is this useless piece of parchment you've handed me? It was a face so devoid of recognition that Ian almost took the map back, momentarily sure that Remus had meant to send him to somebody else. But he had finally caught his breath, and now he burst out. It's Lupin! Sirius's face went severe and keen, just as quickly as it had gone blank. He looked up sharply. What do you mean? What's wrong? Ian could only shake his head and point at the map. Sirius looked down and found where Ian was pointing at Remus's footprint symbol on the map, and was up and halfway across the library before Ian could register the movement. After a split second of hesitation, Ian followed behind. They raced through the castle, Ian about 30 feet behind, running for where Ian had left Remus curled on the floor. The halls were nearly empty, everyone was studying or sleeping. When Sirius dropped down beside Remus in the shadowed alcove, Ian skidded to a halt, keeping back. He didn't want to crowd Remus, but he also wanted to be there if Sirius needed someone to go for Pomfrey. Mooney, Sirius was saying, what happened? What's wrong? He was crouched over Remus just as Ian had been five minutes earlier, but now Remus looked worse. His breathing was horrifically labored and his eyes were closed, his mouth a slack line in his white face. Wordlessly, he turned his left hand upward so that Sirius could see. Ian saw it too, although he had to look around Sirius's shoulder. There was something stuck in Remus's palm. It looked like a pin, but Ian didn't understand why that would be causing Remus so much pain. It glistened silver under the torches. Maybe it was a needle filled with poison. There was something else too, a network of blue-black lines under Remus's skin, starting from where the metal object was stuck in his palm, snaking up from his hand and disappearing under his sleeve, as if something was traveling up his arm through his blood. Sirius hitched a breath. Merlin, is that... I couldn't take it out, whispered Remus, eyes still closed. Please. Sirius plucked the needle from his skin as easy as breathing. Ian blinked. It was gone. He wondered why Remus hadn't been able to do that. He assumed it had been sunk in deep, but if Sirius had pulled it out that quickly, maybe he had misunderstood the danger. Sirius carefully laid the needle down on the far edge of the alcove, far away from Remus. Ian crept a little closer, trying to see what the poison was. How long? said Sirius, beginning to roll up Remus's sleeve. Ian could see the network of blackened veins extending further up his arm. Remus shrugged a shoulder, the smallest of movements. Twenty minutes? He guessed, eyes still squeezed shut. Mooney? said Sirius, his voice strained. You idiot? Why didn't you go to the hospital wing? Couldn't walk? You should have made the pipsqueak carry you. Remus huffed a strained laugh. (laughs) Okay. He said, his voice ragged, eyes still closed and explain the silver poisoning on the way. Sirius glanced towards Ian, then away. Shh, Sirius said, although he didn't tell Remus that Ian was still there, just made the sound into a comforting, placating noise. Silver poisoning? 
thought Ian, confused. Listen, I'm going to draw it out, said Sirius. Could hurt. Remus just nodded and clenched his jaw. Sirius bent down over Remus's hand, his wand touched very lightly to the place where the needle had gone in. He muttered an incantation and slowly pulled his wand away. Ian watched as a thread of silver floated into the air above Remus's arm, drawn out from the pinprick in his palm. Remus moaned as it came out, his body curling into itself, but the blue-black lines were fading quickly. Ian could see that whatever Sirius was doing, it was working. Almost done, said Sirius, teeth clenched. He hadn't taken a single breath since he had begun, and it wasn't until the last drop of silver dripped into the air and Remus's hand relaxed on Sirius's lap that Sirius exhaled explosively. Bloody hell, he gasped, waving his wand at the silver so that it collected into a single floating ball, then flung it in the same direction as the needle. Is it all out? Can you feel anything? Remus shook his head wordlessly. He was still pale, but he looked much better. His breathing was easier, and he had sprawled out in the alcove a bit, no longer hunching in on himself. It's gone, he whispered. Merlin, that was... He stopped. Hell, supplied Sirius, and Remus nodded, his eyes closing. Yeah. Who stuck you? Said Sirius, his eyes flashed in the dark. Remus hesitated, then said, Snivellus. Ian watched Sirius's hands clench into tight fists. That fucking psychopath, said Sirius, his face developing blotchy patches of pink on each cheek. He could have fucking killed you. He didn't know I wouldn't be able to touch it to take it out, said Remus tiredly. He had sprawled out further, his head sliding down the wall. Probably just thought he was going to give me a rush. Still, spluttered Sirius, he's still such a, such a, he couldn't seem to come up with a word to describe exactly how he felt about Snape, and so gave up. One of these days I'll show him what he's really messing with, he finally said darkly. Remus gripped Sirius's wrist tightly, his eyes opening. Don't, he said firmly. Don't do it, Pads. That sink into his level. And you'd be putting me in danger, too. Merlin, fine, I won't, said Sirius quickly. You don't even know what I was thinking, he added sullenly. Yes, I do, actually, said Remus. His head fell back against the wall and his eyes closed again. I think I know you well enough by now, yeah? Sirius stayed silent, watching him. Just let him be the smaller person, all right? He is already, anyway. Sirius snorted in agreement. They sat in the silence for a long time, and Ian wondered if he should leave or go get Pomfrey. Then Remus yawned massively. I think I might, he said, his voice fading. I might be. He stopped talking, and his grip around Sirius's wrist slackened. Ian wasn't sure if he had fainted or just fallen asleep. As Ian watched, Sirius gently removed Remus's hand from his wrist. Then he reached forward and brushed a wisp of hair off Remus's forehead. The gesture was familiar, easy, and heart-wrenchingly intimate. A thought crashed into Ian's mind then, so unexpected and surprising and recognizable that he took a sharp intake of breath. He realized he knew what Sirius was thinking as clearly as if Sirius had said the words aloud. 
It was his third Marauders-related realization of the night, but this one felt the most personal. Sirius glanced up at him at the intake of breath, seeming to remember that Ian was still standing there. He looked annoyed, and caught out, and slightly guilty, and then his expression settled into simply annoyed. Run and tell Pomfrey I'm bringing him down, he said, gesturing at Remus. Tell her he's fine, just needs a looking over, probably. Uh, okay, said Ian weakly. Oh, Enercidus, said Sirius just as Ian was turning away. Ian turned back. Don't, don't tell anyone about this, all right? He had an odd look on his face, a combination of pleading and threat. No, said Ian quickly. Oh, God, no, I would never. Good, said Sirius, glaring at him, because he wouldn't want anybody to know. Half of bloody Gryffindor does already. But if he knew a Ravenclaw was in on it, he trailed off, biting his lip. Ian nodded a bit frantically. No, no, I, I won't tell. I wouldn't. Ever. Thanks, said Sirius. Don't want parents complaining that their precious wee bands are going to school with dark creatures after all. He had already turned back to Remus. Whatever Ian had been about to say next stuck in his throat. What? He croaked out after a moment. Sirius looked back up at him. Werewolves are category 5X, he said patiently. Don't think most parents want to know their kid is going to school with one. I doubt yours would. <clears throat> right, said Ian. Remus is a werewolf, he thought reeling. He almost sat down until he caught Sirius giving him a look. Quickly, he turned and ran towards the infirmary. Remus Lupin is a werewolf, he thought, and I thought I had it hard. Something had snapped into place in Ian's head. He watched the Marauders with new eyes. He remembered when he had thought the Marauders were a twosome, James and Sirius, and he laughed at himself now. Who could look at James and Sirius and not see Remus? Because they looked at him. He watched how they both revolved around Remus, twin moons around a planet. They were drawn in by Remus. They trusted him. They deferred to him. And there was another thing. It wasn't exactly what Ian had thought he'd seen in the alcove that night, but there was something there. Sirius was careful with Remus in a way he wasn't with anybody else. Sirius touched James easily, casually. He touched Peter dismissively. He touched Remus carefully. Not gently, none of them were gentle with him, but Sirius was intentional, hesitant, almost when he touched Remus. Ian couldn't believe he hadn't noticed it before. He wondered how he touched people, how other people touched him. He's staring again, observed Michael one morning, nudging him in the ribs with an elbow. Ian ripped his gaze away from the Gryffindor table and glared at him. Michael took a bite of porridge. I'm not, mumbled Ian, looking down at his own bowl. He stabbed a raisin with the edge of his spoon. Do you have a thing for Lupin or something? asked Michael. He said it casually, but there was an edge to it. Ian glanced up. Michael wasn't looking at him. No, he said slowly. I haven't. Michael ate a spoonful of porridge. Then he asked about the charm's homework. On Halloween of Ian's fifth year, he had to make an annoying and uncomfortable trip to the groundskeeper's hut. Annoying because it was Halloween and it was a Saturday, so most people were sleeping in late and preparing for the festivities that night. Uncomfortable because it was freezing outside and threatening rain. 
He was raising a measle for his Care of Magical Creatures project, which he hadn't realized would be such a trial. Everybody else in his class had chosen an animal that only had to be fed once a day, or did its own foraging, or could be brought up to the castle on weekends. Michael was raising a goldfish, which required no work, and as far as Ian could tell, wasn't even magical. Whereas measles had to be raised in the same place they were born, they required twice-a-day feeding and attention until they reached adolescence. Sometimes Ian could convince Michael to come with him on his trips down to Hagrid's, but today Michael had refused to leave his four-poster on the grounds that it was about three bloody degrees outside, you anchor. Hello, said Hagrid cheerfully when Ian knocked on the door. Come to see Hazel. Yes, shivered Ian. Is she awake? Aye, and hungry as ever. Oh, good, said Ian, his stomach sinking. Hazel was very snappish when she was hungry, as in, she snapped. At him. But he got through the feeding all right, and even quite enjoyed the ten minutes he spent with her afterwards when she was curled up sweetly in his lap, licking the bite wound she had inflicted. And he was sad to leave the warm hut for the cold October drear outside, even with the fresh-baked rock cake secreted in his pocket. He wouldn't eat it, but it would keep his hands warm for the trip back to the castle. He was walking past the greenhouses when he heard a scuffling sound, something that sounded like an altercation. He almost kept walking, it was bloody cold, but at the last second decided he wouldn't forgive himself if he heard about a fight later and hadn't gone to witness it firsthand. Michael definitely wouldn't forgive him. It wasn't until he had already rounded the corner of the greenhouse that he realized his mistake. It wasn't an altercation he had heard. Or, at least, if it was, both parties were quite enjoying the altercation. There was a boy leaning against the greenhouse wall, his head thrown back against the glass. Ian recognized him immediately as the seventh-year Ravenclaw, Jordan Kaminsky. Kaminsky's hand was wrapped in the hair of somebody kneeling before him. Oh, said Ian without thinking. He turned immediately, but it was not before he recognized the kneeling boy. It was Remus Lupin. He ran up to the castle straight to the Ravenclaw Tower, the cold forgotten his mind full of the image. Every time he blinked he saw it again, as if they were standing right in front of him. He barely heard the riddle, might not have been able to answer it if it wasn't for a girl entering at the same time as him, and raced up the stairs to his dorm. When he collapsed through the door, Michael was still in bed, and he looked up from his book with bemusement. "'What's up with you?' he asked. "'Hazel bite you again?' "'No,' panted Ian. "'Well, yes, but it's not that.' He stood there, the image of Remus and Kaminsky bright in his mind, trying to decide if he should tell. He knew he shouldn't, but he couldn't not tell somebody. Rather, he couldn't not tell Michael.' I saw Remus Lupin with somebody behind the greenhouses, he said finally in a rush. Michael sat up, looking interested. Behind the greenhouses was so codified in the Hogwarts lexicon as meaning looking for some privacy, or more crudely, getting off, that Michael didn't have to ask what Ian meant. With who? he asked curiously. Somebody we know. Ian hesitated for approximately one-third of a second before he gave in. Jordan Kaminsky! he said breathlessly. What? came the reply, but not from Michael. Ian's stomach plummeted as he whipped around. He had not checked to see if anybody else was in the dorm. He had been too flustered. And now he was paying for the thoughtlessness. Grizzly Orbington was sticking his head out of his bed hangings. Remus Lupin and Kaminsky? 
breathed Orbington, eyes wide. You're joking. Yes, said Ian desperately. Sorry, it was a joke. I thought nobody else was in here, was trying to pull one over on Michael. But Orbington wasn't even remotely fooled. He heaved himself out of bed and headed for the door. I'm telling Stoller, he cackled gleefully. He owes me five galleons for this. Ian and Michael watched helplessly as Orbington disappeared through the door. Fuck, Ian said with feeling. The news was halfway around the school by dinner. When Remus walked into the great hall, somebody whistled loudly, and what looked to be the entire Slytherin table started snickering. Remus glanced around, confused. He looked warily on guard. Ian watched with a sinking heart as Remus started walking to his place at the Gryffindor table, the eyes of the hall following him. He was halfway there when somebody seated at the Ravenclaw table muttered something Ian didn't hear, and Remus stopped short. Without even looking at Kaminsky, he turned on his heel and walked out of the Great Hall again. Fuck, said Ian with even more feeling. He slumped down over his food. The meal looked incredible, as it always did at the Halloween feast, but Ian hadn't managed a single bite. Michael gave him a pat on the shoulder. It'll be old news by tomorrow, he said soothingly. Ian chanced a glance at James, Sirius, and Peter. They were watching Remus disappear out of the Great Hall, looking confused. I sort of wish it was old news already, muttered Ian, sinking still lower in his seat. By the end of the feast, he was feeling so guilty he couldn't bring himself to go to the Halloween party that was planned for that night. He had seen Sirius storm out of the Great Hall at some point, his expression black, and James and Peter both looked shell-shocked when they followed him out a few minutes later. His stomach was a squirming nest of snakes, and he thought he might throw up. He finally slunk out of the hall and headed for the library. If there was any place that was guaranteed to be empty on Halloween night, it was the library. Sure enough, Madame Pince was the only other person there. She glared at him as he walked in and curled up by the fire, then disappeared into her office. Ian stared bleakly into the flames, feeling sorry for himself. He was being torn apart by guilt. Every few minutes he had to talk himself out of hunting Remus down to apologize in person. He might have done just that if what happened next hadn't happened. He had been sitting in front of the fire for 20 minutes when two people stormed into the library, talking in low, furious voices. It wasn't until they rounded the corner of the stacks that Ian could hear them clearly enough to place the voices. Snogging a fucking Hufflepuff, Sirius finished saying curtly. Ian sank deeper into the armchair. This was not a conversation he wanted to overhear. He's at Ravenclaw, responded Remus. They were moving closer. They had just moved into Ian's view when Remus pulled up short, turning to face Sirius. Sirius almost bumped into him as he was following very close behind, but drew up just in time. Ian squished himself very small into the corner of his armchair, trying to think upholstered thoughts. Thoughts, that's not the point, said Sirius, practically spitting with frustration. And why are you so pissed off about this? asked Remus sharply. He looked like he was trying very hard to remain calm in the face of a conversation that didn't deserve it. You knew I was bent. What, you thought I was never going to kiss anybody? Hoping you never have to acknowledge the fact that I'm a flame and puffter. I'm not. That's not. I just don't know why you didn't tell us, said Sirius. He had raised his voice. They clearly thought the library was empty. I, we had to find out from bloody Frank that you were snogging somebody. Why didn't you tell us yourself? 
It was ten minutes behind the greenhouse's tops. History mess. Not exactly mind-blowing. Oh, sneered Sirius. Not mind-blowing, I'm sure. Oh yes, very funny, snapped Remus. Well, you're right, it was regular blowing. Sirius reared back as if he had been slapped. Ian watched two spots of color bloom high on Remus's cheeks and noticed that his knuckles on fisted hands were white. I was sucking his cock, all right, continued Remus, voice tight. Anne, it was very nice, or it was, until we were bloody interrupted by somebody who clearly has too much time on their hands, he added, because apparently they like to spread rumors about business that isn't their own. Ian's heart clenched. It's hardly rumors, is it? said Sirius furiously. If you really were sucking Kaminsky's cock. The words seemed to anger him. He shook his head impatiently as if flicking water out of his hair. The school has me bent over, said Remus coldly. Getting fucked, he clarified viciously at Sirius's confused silence. So yes, they're rumors. And I'm guessing they'll be worse than that by tomorrow. He finished mouth-twisting. Sirius was silent. His face was bright red. Is this what you wanted to hear about? Asked Remus after a moment. His fists were clenching and unclenching at his side, and his voice was the cold blade of a sharpened knife. Because it's funny. You don't exactly seem happy to be listening to it. Sirius turned and walked away, robes swirling around him, but he only made it to the end of the aisle before he stopped and turned around. Are you with him? He asked, and his voice had lowered to something like a normal volume, though it still sounded tight and angry. Kaminsky? Asked Remus incredulously. He gave a short, sharp laugh. <laughs> Christ, Sirius, have you met him? He's an arsehole. Not enough of an arsehole to turn you off, apparently, said Sirius sharply. Well, I tend to fall for arseholes, snapped Remus, and he happened to be interested. So, and he gives great head, he added defiantly. His cheeks hadn't lost their high spots of color. Sirius winced. Remus glowered at him. What, I have to hear about your conquests and James's, but you don't want to listen to mine. Sirius ran a shaking hand through his hair, avoiding Remus's gaze. I don't, actually, he said, but the way he said it was strange, not angry or disgusted, but desperate. I don't, I'm, I'm sorry. Remus was shaking with rage now. Ew, bloody, how? He was spluttering, unable or unwilling to form a coherent sentence, and unlike Ian, he was not paying attention to the way Sirius was moving forward with purpose. Ian couldn't stop himself from gasping when he realized what was about to happen. Luckily, neither Remus nor Sirius were in a position to notice the muffled sound. Sirius had grabbed Remus's face roughly, and whatever Remus was trying to say was lost entirely as he snapped his mouth closed. They looked at each other an inch apart, and then Sirius kissed him. It was a long moment. The kiss didn't look comfortable, exactly. Remus kept his eyes open. Sirius's shoulders were tight. When Sirius broke away, he was breathing unevenly. I don't want to hear about the people you kiss, he said with a firmness belayed by shaking hands, if it's not going to be me.
He let Remus go and turned, clearly about to race out of the library as fast as his legs could carry him, but Remus reached for him, catching hold of the sleeve of his robe and pulling him back. Wait, he said, the word half choked off. Sirius stopped immediately and turned to look at him. Remus stared at him, opening and closing his mouth twice before he got his next words out. Are you... are you serious? Sirius looked very much like he wanted to make a joke and decided against it at the last second. Yes, he said simply. This isn't some prank. Sirius frowned. No. And you aren't just pissed at the first bloke I went and snogged wasn't you. You aren't just taking this as a blow to your ego. Sirius wavered. I mean, I am pissed that the first bloke you went and snogged wasn't me, to be honest. But at the look on Remus's face, his own expression softened. No, you daft sod. I've wanted to kiss you for, I don't know, ages. Since last year. Why didn't you say something? Asked Remus, gaping at him. His hand had moved to grip Sirius's arm. Because I, James, were the marauders. What if he didn't like me? I would have fucked it all up. He had moved closer to Remus and they were inches apart again. Sirius was beginning to smile, a wide, vulnerable smile. His hand moved to the base of Remus's skull. You didn't fuck it up, said Remus. He kissed Sirius this time. Ian snuck out of the library a few minutes later, praying that Sirius and Remus were well and truly occupied. He fervently wished them a few more minutes of pince-free time, primarily so that Ian had time to escape. His fingers were shaking with adrenaline. He raced up to Ravenclaw Tower, his legs barely feeling the stairs, his own panting obscuring any other sound. He noticed vaguely the stream of people heading downstairs, presumably to the Halloween parties, but he didn't stop. Instead, he barreled into the dormitory, skidding to a stop in front of Michael. Michael looked up from where he was flipping through an atlas. Who reads atlases? thought Ian a little hysterically, but he pushed the thought away and said the words he had run up the stairs to say. I don't want to hear about the people you kiss, he panted, feeling his own face flush with brilliant warmth, if it's not going to be me. Michael stared up at him. What? he said blankly. I never kiss anyone. Ian kissed him. Michael kissed him back. They missed the Halloween party. The end. Thanks everybody for listening. Catch you on the next one.